Welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. Together, we're going to explore lessons to help us live well. Let the learning begin. Welcome to episode 62 of the School of Wellbeing podcast. I'm Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. And I work with big-hearted educators that are ready to prioritize their well-being and take courageous action despite the everyday pressures of school life. Energy by Design is my game-changing well-being program for educators. Over four weeks, you have access to a space to connect, share, laugh, and learn with others that get it and are ready to reclaim their spark. Join the waitlist to be the first to know when enrollments open. Is it really possible to feel good and function well despite struggles? Being an adult is hard work. Being an adult that cares for young minds and hearts is even harder. When I was younger, I used to think that life would get easier with age. However, I am coming to the painful realization that in fact, life seems to be getting more complex. The everyday struggles of life continue to build. When I was younger, a good chat along with a Milo and cupcake would have solved most things. Now, it's not so easy. In this week's episode, I have the honour of chatting with Dr. Peggy Kern. Peggy is an Associate Professor at the Centre of Wellbeing Science within the University of Melbourne's Graduate School of Education. Originally trained in social, personality and developmental psychology, Peggy received her undergraduate degree in psychology from Arizona State University, a Master's and PhD in Social Personality Psychology from the University of California, and a postdoctoral training in positive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. Peggy's research focuses on understanding, measuring, and supporting well-being across the lifespan. She works with schools and workplaces to examine strategies for supporting well-being and bridging the gap between research and practice. She has published three books, over 100 peer-reviewed articles and chapters, and the new freely available Handbook of Positive Education. And on top of this, Peggy is a big-hearted human that cares deeply about her students and walks her talk with integrity and grace. In this conversation, we discuss how our understanding of well-being has evolved, the importance of purposeful action, practical ways to live well despite struggle, and so much more. I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Dr. Peggy Kern. Peggy, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be joining you today. Peggy, you've been involved in wellbeing education for a long time now, and I'm curious to understand, how do you think it's changed over the years? So it's actually interesting. My journey looking at wellbeing and related concepts really began when I was in graduate school. So my master's thesis was actually looking at healthy aging. So what does it mean to actually age well? compared to just uh, usual aging or sort of pathological aging that we see. At that time, really, I, w- I was focused on sort of different parts of health, which include mental, physical, social, cognitive, and functional domains. There was a lab group, a positive psychology lab group at the time. And I think my understanding around the well-being was really, a lot of the focus at that point was really around emotion. And so it was really sort of the the feel-good emotions, being happy, joyful, et cetera. I actually saw pod psych as sort of a happyology, just like those super optimistic people that for some reason are happy with life. I then ended up doing a postdoc 
fellowship at the University of Pennsylvania, which is sort of the home of positive psychology. And I was very skeptical. And it was as I started really working in the area and actually married up that early work on healthy aging that I had been doing with really thinking about well-being from the psychological perspective. And so what we have really seen over time is the definitions of well-being really beginning with a lot of focus on emotions. And I think a lot of that is because the field wanted to show that we can improve something. And the easiest thing to change is emotions. And so you can actually show changes in emotions by doing different activities and whatnot. But I think over time, what we've seen is a real maturing of that. And so you have sort of a second wave that starts to really think about, well, what about negative emotion? What about those negative experiences? What about more eudaimonic well-being? So things like sense of meaning, our relationships with others, our cognitive ability, all of those things that I actually studied as part of healthy aging back in the day. So there was a real marrying there of sort of prior work with other areas and really seeing more evolving of this coming into the post-psych area. And I think what we're, we're seeing now is bringing in more of sort of the, the complexity of life. We're thinking about both the emotions, but also sort of the more functional elements of well-being. We're looking at, well, what is well-being for different people? And different people have different views about what well-being actually is. And by actually understanding that, we can actually help support well-being better. So my own thinking, as well as I would say the field's thinking about well-being, has really evolved over time. My favorite way of thinking about well-being now is sort of a garden. Different gardens look different for different people, or different gardens look different. You have a cactus garden versus a flower garden look very different, but both of them are thriving. And well-being looks different for different people, but we still have a sense of they're doing well. We also see that you know a garden is a collective. It's not a single plant. And so if my well-being is being promoted at the expense of someone else, that's actually not well-being. And then thirdly, gardens need care. So you need to give it proper water and sunshine and nutrients. And in the same way, well-being is something that does not just happen. And so becomes this nice little analogy that helps us really think much more about the complexity of well-being, which I've seen kind of unfolding over the years. It's beautiful to think that you started out looking at that healthy aging piece and then seeing how, oh, this healthy aging lends itself to this psych world and then as we're in this psych world it's so much more than emotions and how this second wave have come through and really seeing just how much depth there is and how much nuance to what it means to be well for individual people. I think that's exactly it and I think my background is really looking at what it means to thrive in life across the lifespan and I think starting with that longer period of who does well in life over the long term, it actually gives us a lot of insights into what we should be doing in our schools and with our young people in order to be actually be putting them on a trajectory that moves them towards thriving in life as opposed to really struggling a lot through life. And that's what this podcast is all about. How can we create environments where we learn these skills to be well? So to distill it all down, 
how can you define well-being? So my definition of well-being, and it, it comes from uh, Felicia Hupper and Thomas So, uh, they talk about well-being as feeling good and functioning well, which really brings in that how we're actually feeling and how we're actually functioning. And I like to look at that across different domains of life. Which domains matter depends on the person that you're talking to. Some people really value things like how they feel emotionally. Others really care about accomplishing things in life. Others really care about having good relationships. And so different domains are actually going to matter to us, but it's feeling good because if I'm not feeling good, then it's actually hard to actually be really functioning well in the long term. We can do it in the short term, but it, at some point we kind of burn out and become exhausted. And so we do need to have some of those feel good moments to keep us going along, but we also need to be functioning well. So if I feel good, but I'm not functioning well, then that's problematic as well. And so is it possible to feel good and function better? It absolutely is. And I think that's really has come out in research from myself and others that we've really seen occur over time. Interestingly enough, I think we can feel and function better, but it actually takes effort to do that. And so I like to think about the analogy of physical fitness is if I want to be physically fit, that does not just happen. I actually need to move my body. I need to eat well. I need to sleep well. And so there are things that we do to actually take care of our physical fitness. And I would say the same thing goes with our mental health is to feel and function well, we need to be thinking about what are the thoughts that I really focus on? What are the behaviors that I engage in? What are the emotions that I feel? And how can I be doing things that are actually going to be supportive of my mental health as opposed to detrimental to our mental health. And so we can feel better and function better over time. And I would say it's really through the things that we actually do. I like to think about it as if we can develop positive habits, these actually support our well-being. It's not a magic bullet. It does not happen overnight, but it's the persistent chipping away at our well-being over time that can make really a lot of changes for the better. It's so heartening to hear that we really can feel and function better yes. and also what you're saying is that it requires effort and that's not something that we like as humans <laughs> as humans we want things to be simple we want five easy steps i often laugh about the brochure that i would really like to write about consistency discipline self-trust but no one wants to hear hear that but this is what it requires for us to be well it takes effort, but it doesn't take effort. So, you know, we can start to say, well, now it's going, I have to like spend hours a day focusing on my mental health or whatever. It's actually a lot of the simple things that we blend into our everyday lives that actually can make a difference. And so, for instance, with my thoughts, we are bombarded by negative things all the time. And so we can have a lot of negative thoughts. Think about the dialogue that goes through your head. How much of that is sort of that negative self-critic? that is constantly playing on in our heads about, you know, we're not working hard enough or we're not happy enough or we're not doing enough or all the ways that we aren't good enough and actually flipping that to focus on, you know, what am I grateful for? That's a shift of our, it's a purposeful shift in our thinking, but it actually changes how we experience our everyday life. Same way with some of our behaviors. There are little things that we can put into our day 
that are actually going to be supportive of our mental health. So it doesn't have to be an added burden and whatnot, but it does take that purposeful decision to actually say, I'm going to add more of these positives as opposed to the negatives that might be there. Oh, I love that idea of a purposeful decision. Thank you. (laughs) I I would say, I mean, I think it's a great way to just describe it is we can decide now. Now, obviously, if life goes, you know, life can go up and down. We've seen that, obviously, the, the pandemic has shown us how crazy life can be and whatnot. And so, you know, there are going to be times where life is just too overwhelming to actually feel and function well. It's a normal human experience to struggle at that point. But then it's also deciding, are there little things I can be doing to support myself if I'm having a hard time? You know, so if I'm having a hard time, maybe I'm actually going to be more self-compassionate towards myself, kinder to myself. I'm not going to fill up my schedule as much. I'm not going to put as much stress and pressure on me and so that I can actually function better. And then in those times that life is better, then we can actually be saying, okay, how can I be proactively building some of those positive habits and building some of those positive skills so that it actually helps me to be more resilient at those times of struggle. So there really is a purposeful nature to it. We decide to do it and we have to keep making that decision to do it. It's not just a, I've decided to be happy now I'm done. It's sort of that ongoing decision to actually say, I'm prioritizing my mental health and well-being. We're really talking about well-being as a verb. It's a daily practice of noticing what's happening in our body, in our minds, and then taking that purposeful action. That's exactly it. And, you know, things like mindfulness and meditation have, you know, there's a lot about that right now. There's actually a lot of research on mindfulness and the benefits that it can show. And I think there's an aspect of mindfulness, not the full practice with all, you know, you can do recordings and things like that, but there's actually an element of mindfulness, which is actually really important for our mental health and well-being. And that's that purposeful noticing how my thoughts, noticing my, my emotions and judging that on not, well, not judging it, but just sort of noticing it and observing it on an everyday basis. And from there saying, what do I do about that? Do I take actions that move me towards the person I want to be and the values that I have, or do I take actions that actually move me away from that? And that is such a skill and almost an art to be able to know when to lean into something and when to lean away from something. It's very much a skill. So it's something that we can learn to do. Again, it takes the effort to do that and the decision to say, this is actually my well-being. My mental health and well-being is a priority. And so I am going to play with that. I'm going to, you know, we don't know what is going to work. There's all sorts of different activities we can do to change our thoughts, emotions, and behaviors in a more positive light. Some are really going to connect with us. Others is just not going to work for you at all. And we only know that by playing with it and trying things out. And then as they work for us, notice that and say, okay, this is a tool in my tool set now. And When I need it, I can actually bring it in and use it in order to be helping to navigate my everyday life in a more kind of authentic manner. And being able to draw on a whole range of skill sets, depending on the situation and what it requires from us. You know, and I think oftentimes some of the the pod psych interventions, it's 
it, it just feels sort of contrived because it's just sort of one thing that you're supposed to do over and over or whatever. But actually, if I'm trying all sorts of different activities and skills, then I can start to see, you know what, this helps me here. This one doesn't help me here. And so we can start using different tools for different situations in order to help sort of navigate the, the waters that we have to, to navigate. And that's the approach that I'm really drawn to is more of a buffet style of this is a whole range of strategies and skills and ways of thinking and play with it, try it on and see what resonates with you. I think that element of playfulness is so important. We take life so seriously and we kind of want to be like, you know, give me the solution. And, and the reality is we don't know the solution. That's part of the complexity of us as human beings. And so different things work for different people. And so we can try something. If it doesn't work, no worries. You know, let's actually just try something else until we find the things that really resonate with us. And if we can find the things that resonate with us, that's how we develop those positive habits. Because then we start doing them more and more. They become more natural. So at first it's effortful, but as we do it more, it becomes more of our way of, of being such that it changes how we actually experience life. Yes, I'm just smiling because I rely so heavily on physical, the physical activity and running is one of my favorite things and also ocean water swimming. And I haven't been able to run for at least four months because I've got this ongoing injury and I'm noticing more and more just how it's getting to me that irritation because it is such a coping mechanism for me. And due to all of the floods, I haven't been swimming in the open water because you can't swim at the moment. And it's interesting to notice once something has become such an integral part of your life when you can't do it. That was actually one of the challenges for many people through the pandemic is that many of the ways that help us manage our well-being a lot of those were actually all of a sudden we didn't have access to things. We couldn't draw on the skills that we've always had. So it, ha it did challenge a lot of people's resilience, including my own resilience. Those normal ways of doing things no longer were possible and over a very extended period of time. And so having some of that flexibility is, is helpful in case something is actually like the physical exercise, if all of a sudden we can't do that, we need to have some other skills in there that we can bring in in order to help support ourselves. And I think we need to be aware that, okay, this is a key, key thing for me. If I can't do this now, what else can I be doing to actually support myself well? Yes. Well, you'd be happy to know that I've taken up clinical Pilates again. So I'm like, this is my thing. <laughs> it's going to help me in the interim before I can get out there and running. So what do you think are some myths when it comes to well-being? One is that it's a particular model or framework. So there, there's various frameworks of well-being out there, um, such as the perm, uh, Seligman's PERMA framework. So positive emotion, engagement, relationship, meaning, and accomplishment. Carol Riff has her psychological well-being model, which has six different domains. Ed Diener has subjective well-being, which is high positive effect, low negative effect, and high satisfaction with life. So there's different frameworks and models of well-being that have been proposed by different scholars in the area. And those are a helpful starting point, but that's not like the definition of well-being. It's much more we need to be thinking about 
feeling good and functioning well across multiple areas of, of life. And those areas of life are the ones that actually matter to me. So what do I value? Well-being is value-based. So we have to be thinking about what do I value and how can I actually move towards that as opposed to there's this cookie cutter of what well-being should be. I think a second myth is there's a simple solution to well-being. You know, I mean, I think there's so many self-help books out there. There's so much information out there that's just sort of like, you know, do this and you'll feel happy. And so it's just sort of like this silver bullet approach. And so people end up trying all sorts of things just to try to feel happy, as opposed to it actually being, it's actually those behaviors, emotions, and thoughts, what we do consistently over a long period of time, which actually are supportive. Those are, again, going back to the garden. It's giving our gardens the nutrients it needs, the sunshine, the water and whatnot, the care it needs to actually function well. And so well-being it doesn't come about through a silver bullet or a quick fix solution. So that's another myth that I would say is out there about well-being. Another myth I would actually suggest, which is probably debatable, but I would argue it is there's an assumption that well-being is available to everyone. And I'd say well-being should be available to everyone, but there are a lot of people who actually can experience well-being because of whether it's from traumatic experiences, power imbalances, the environments that we're in can cause a lot of ill-being. And I think when someone is really trapped in a certain context or situation or an environment, then it actually eliminates their ability to experience well-being. And we actually need to help that person move to a different situation or context so that they actually can experience well-being. So the environments that we create for people are actually really important to support well-being. And those of us who are in control of others through management roles, teaching roles, parenting roles, et cetera, it's actually our responsibility to create conditions so that people actually can experience well-being and that we don't stop people from that. The final myth I'll speak to is that you can experience well-being if you have mental illness. And I, I think that's a common one. It's almost like you have to get rid of mental illness in order to experience well-being or in order to actually thrive in life. And the research really suggests that actually you can thrive, you can experience well-being even when you have mental illness. And so I think that's an actual very fascinating one, but I think a very important point to make. I think that is a really important point to make because it's often talked about you're either ill or yeah. you're well, and there's no nuance around this conversation. And and a lot of this really comes out with, I mean, even, even the big models in the field, they talk about a continuum of mental health. So you think about it, on one end is severe mental illness. On the other end is severe flourishing or severe thriving, whatever you want to call it. And in the middle is just sort of getting by. So in that case, you know, this is we always want to be moving people up this continuum. People always think they have to get better. I would actually say, you know, if you're a seven out of 10 on a well-being scale, actually, we just want to keep you there. We don't want you to be a 10 out of 10 on everything. That's just at times you might be a 10 out of 10, but that's not the, the goal. It's actually we just need to get to our optimal level and maintain that optimal level for what, what fits for us. Corey Keyes, however, uh, suggests the dual continuum model of well-being. It puts mental illness on one continuum and well-being on the other continuum. 
And so what this does is it creates kind of four different blocks. So you can have thriving without mental illness. That's sort of like the high end of that single continuum that we can think of is someone without mental illness who's really doing well in life. Then we can see on the other end is those who have low well-being and they're struggling with mental illness. And these are the people that really benefit from care and support, whether it's, you know, a psychologist, GP, psychiatrist, other mental health resources. There's a lot of resources out there. And if you find yourself really in that struggle state, it's really important that you get help. There's help there and we all can benefit from support at times. Then you have those who don't have mental illness, but they don't have well-being. Those are the ones that are just sort of getting by in life. They're just sort of like experiencing the status quo. And people who are just kind of getting by, they're actually at risk of moving into that real struggle state. And so we do want to be finding ways to motivate people to actually be proactively caring for their mental health, to help them experience that sense of feeling good and functioning well in life. And then there's the group that have mental illness, but also experience well-being. And I think people often think about this. They're like, how can you have mental illness and still experience thriving? Now, thriving often looks different if you have mental illness. So you might not have as many positive emotions as someone without mental illness, but you can have really good relationships. You can have a great sense of meaning. You know, so these other areas of life actually probably become more important. And the analogy I like to think about is with physical uh, conditions is you can have physical conditions and still be physically fit. So for instance, I have asthma, so that's a chronic condition, but I'm an athlete. And so I run, I cycle, I swim. You know, as long as I manage the asthma and I just do what is needed to actually manage the symptoms and whatnot, I can experience physical fitness. And in the same way, some of us just experience mental illness for a variety of reasons, life circumstances, biological reasons, all sorts of reasons why we experience mental illness. And for some of us, that's a lifelong sort of a piece of us. But instead of saying this is something bad that we have to get rid of, we can actually say, you know what, this is just part of me. It's not who I am. So we often kind of like get stuck with this label. You're depressed, you're anxious, you're schizophrenic or whatever. That doesn't have to be our label. That can just be, you know, this is just something at times I just struggle more and I just need to add in more supports and whatnot at that time. But it doesn't define me. And I can still experience well-being, even if I have this condition that I carry. Thank you so much for bringing this forward, this notion that we can live well despite our struggles. And it's, it's, been, it's been exciting recently in some of our, our literature. We've actually asked people, where do you put yourself? Living well without struggle, doing well despite struggle, just getting by or really struggling. We've had a lot of uh, workers across Australia, US, a few other countries indicate this. And, and one thing we saw through the pandemic is those who were really thriving without struggle, that, that group really decreased over time. Whereas the group that increased were those that were thriving despite struggle. And I think that is our, our definition of resilience is those who are figuring out how to support their well-being despite the challenges that are there. And what we see is that those who were in that resilient group were doing just as well on things like satisfaction with their job, being a good worker, being motivated to care for their well-being and whatnot. So a lot of these other things that are beneficial in our workplace, we see that those who indicate 
thriving despite struggle, actually doing just as well as those who have not really had those struggles. It's such a powerful point. A painful realization that I've been coming to at the moment is as you get older, the struggles of life get bigger and more complex and there is no easy fix. Adulting is so hard, you know, and, and I think there are times is like, it'd be so nice to just go back to childhood and have our parents taking care of us. The reality is we're, we're living in complex times. There's a lot of challenges individually, but there's a lot of global challenges and all of these have an impact on us. And this is flowing into mental illness as well. I love uh, Johan Hari, who's a journalist, and he's, he's written several books. He, he has a book called Lost Connections, which is a fantastic read. And he really talks about the, the rise of depression around the world. And he makes the point in there that, you know, when everything is going wrong, then actually being happy at that point is actually dysfunctional. So if you are feeling depressed and sad and whatnot, there are very clear reasons for that. And a lot of that is everything that's happening in society and those disconnections that we have with those around us. Otto Sharma talks about sort of three big divides. First of all, there's the spiritual divide. So we're divided from ourselves, don't know ourselves. We're kind of, our our lives are, are kind of on social media and visible but we actually are disconnected with ourselves. And that leads to things like depression and anxiety and whatnot. There's a social divide. So even though we're more connected than ever, we, we feel more alone than ever. Um, and we see a lot, we see loneliness is a huge issue for people. And so we don't have those, those good connections. And that's a huge, has a huge impact on our well-being. And then there's an ecological divide. We're divided from nature. And so instead of being carers of the environment, we're users as an abusers of the environments. And we're seeing that coming out with all the climate change and everything like that. And so there can be very good reasons why we are struggling as adults. In many ways, we have to carry the struggle for so many others. And especially those of us who are in education and whatnot, we have our own struggles, but then there's also being there and supporting our students and those that we work with as well, which is even more complexity. Yes, and it's normalizing that well-being is also struggling. It's normalizing this human experience. We're not designed to be up and about every day. There's ebbs and flows. It's actually much more self-compassionate to say, we're going to have up days and we're going to have down days. And instead of being critical of ourselves, actually just accepting that and just noticing where we're at And maybe when we're struggling more, that's when we need to add in more of those resources. And so those skills actually become even more important when we're struggling. The challenging part about that is when we aren't feeling well, it's harder to do all of those things. It's harder. We don't have the motivation. It's a lot easier to kind of sit in the misery. And so that's when we actually have to be even more purposeful in terms of drawing on the resources around us and the skills that we have within us in order to kind of carry ourselves on some of those harder days. One problem I have with a lot of, with some of the well-being work is people will measure well-being and then they always want to see improvements. It's almost like there always has to be a improvement. Well, actually a lot of that is actually just kind of staying in our optimal zone and there's going to be ups and downs through that. And just accepting that is actually going to be most beneficial. Because if we're constantly looking for improvement, then we're almost putting pressure on ourselves to be not human. Yeah. 
That's exactly it. And it becomes, you know, it's that treadmill is we always have to be improving, you know, and actually we burn out then that it just ends up taking so much effort and whatnot that we actually cause ourselves more struggle because we actually burn out on things. And so if we stop that constant striving for better and actually we say, what is optimal for me? which looks different than somebody else. So one person there, what well-being looks like for them is very different than someone else. But we sort of have a, this is my zone of when I'm functioning well, feeling good and functioning well. And what can I do to actually stay within that range as opposed to that constant needing more, constant need for improvement, which just becomes sort of part of the rat race. And what I've learned for myself is feeling good and functioning well looks very different at different chapters of life. What I could do pre-children is very different to what I can do now with two small children. 100% agree. Yeah. So just because we learn some skills doesn't mean that they're going to function for us for the rest of our lives, you know, and that's, that's, you know, recognizing that different things are going to be working well for us at different times. You know, I think about this with some of the different skills. I, I think about mindfulness. I was very resistant to mindfulness for a long time. You know, it's just like, yeah, I just don't like that you know, mindfulness stuff. But now it's actually become a really important part of my life for a number of different reasons. And so different things become important at different times. And so the challenge for us, or or I guess the opportunity is to be open to trying different things. And if one stops working, let's try something else. And again, play with it and find out what is going to be helpful. So at this point, I'm really curious to know What is the difference between struggle and illness? From a clinical perspective, illness occurs when our functional capacity is significantly disrupted. And so when we're struggling, I like to think about that as things are just harder than usual um, for, and that can be for any number of reasons. Illness is when that struggle becomes overwhelming enough that, that all of a sudden we can't actually handle our day-to-day tasks that we need to be doing. So clinically, there's sort of like, if you hit this, then that's the threshold that all of a sudden you're mentally ill, but that pathologizes the struggles that are there. At this point, there's a lot of sort of even overdiagnosis of depression and anxiety. So people are just feeling a lot of worry, understandably so. And we pathologize that and say, you know, now you have an anxiety disorder. Some of that might be true, but some of it might actually be just people reacting in human ways to a lot of struggles that are going on in our very challenging world. So we want to be careful about not pathologizing natural struggle. At the same time, if you do find that struggles are impacting your ability to function, you can call it illness, you can call it struggle. But the key is that you reach out for support. There are a lot of really good supports out there, even talking to your GP about challenges that you're having and whether there can be some extra supports there, reaching out to a counselor or psychologist, or just even talking with friends actually can help normalize some of that struggle. And so I think if if you find that it's really affecting your ability to function, it's really important at that time to actually seek help from others. Yes, I think that is the distinguishing point, isn't it? That if it's disrupting your day-to-day life, the importance to seek help. Yeah, and I think, you know, it can be hard to seek help, but 
I'd encourage listeners to seek help if you are struggling, because we're not meant to, to do life on our own. <laughs> you know, we're, we're, we're relational people and, you know, we all need a little extra help at times and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And I think that's another myth maybe that people have is that they think they should be able to thrive alone. Yes. And I, I agree with that is that we think that we just have to have it all together. And we, we look at others and they're like, they have it all together. You know, why am I struggling so much? And yet we actually often don't know people's real struggles. People can look really good on the surface, even though they're really struggling and barely making it through. And so I think the more that we actually reach out to others, we actually find out others are struggling as well. And then we're actually, we actually can help each other as we actually identify over some of those common struggles. Yes, that's one of the privileges of my job is that I talk with people every day and they're very willing to share the strengths and struggles. And so it's become very obvious that no one has it together every moment yep. of the day. And it's so refreshing. You know, I talk to, to moms and they're all like, other, other moms seem to be so good at this. Like, why is parenting such a struggle for me? You know, and it turns out if they actually really ask those questions, others are having that same struggle with being a mom. Or you ask someone who's like struggling with, with their work and they're like, all my, my colleagues all have it together. And I think one thing we've lost is those water cooler conversations, which actually might have shown that actually we all have common struggles. We have got to hide that much more around the, the technology and whatnot. And yet, if we start to bring up those conversations, we can say, you know, a, a lot of people are struggling and we can actually find commonalities in our struggles to actually help each other as opposed to thinking we have to do it all on our own. I think that is such a beautiful message. So to wrap up this incredible conversation, Peggy, I'd love to invite you to complete four sentences. Are you up for that? Oh, sounds good. I am inspired by... I'm inspired by the amazingly passionate people and students that I'm privileged to work with. I get to work with people who envision ways to make this world a better place, and I get to support them on their journeys. And so I'm completely inspired by the people and students that I work with. When life feels hard? When life feels hard, be kind to yourself and reach out for support. An underrated skill is? Underrated skill is having the motivation to maintain our mental fitness, going back to that, it does take ongoing effort. And I think we actually need to recognize how important motivation is within that and really build that motivation because it does take ongoing effort. And I'm looking forward to. I'm looking forward to what will come of this kind of growing look at complexity within positive psychology and positive education. So kind of bringing in much more acknowledging the complexity that's there. And a lot of my work is really focused on that. I think people are getting excited about saying, you know, yeah, we're going beyond the simple ways of thinking about well-being as emotion. We're actually capturing the full complexity of people's lives. And we actually are going to figure out how we can actually impact upon the world through that. And so I'm excited to see what, what will come of all of that. Peggy, thank you so much for the work you're doing in this space. I absolutely love everything that you produce and it always warms my heart to know that you're someone that is deeply engaged with the work and in, in an intelligent way, but also just such a big-hearted human. So thank you for your work and thank you for being a guest on the School of Wellbeing. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. 
Each time I chat with Peggy, I am blown away by her depth and breadth of knowledge and expertise in the science of well-being. And I hope this conversation has inspired you to take purposeful action in your life so you can feel good and function well despite the struggles you are facing. To learn more about Peggy and her incredible work in the world, visit her website, peggykern.org. There you will find a wealth of resources and a remarkable collection of interesting and motivational quotes. So if you love a good quote, I highly recommend you check out Peggy's website. If you love the episode, please share it with anyone you think would benefit from hearing Peggy's inspiring and thought-provoking insights. To learn how I can help you and your school community thrive, visit my website, openmindeducation.com. There you can book me to speak at your next professional development day or join the waitlist for the next round of Energy Bar Design, my game-changing wellbeing program for educators. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash episode 62. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing and I look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you next week.